Coaches, welcome to the Championship Vision Podcast with Coach Kevin Furtado. Today is episode 52. Today we have a very unique opportunity to get coached up. Uh, today we have Coach Betsy Butterick. She is the coach's coach and the communication specialist that businesses and teams call upon when they are serious about improving. Betsy is a former college athlete and has worked at the NCAA Division I, II, and III levels of college basketball. Her experience and expertise have allowed her to work with some of the top teams and speak at prestigious conferences across the country. Coaches, let's welcome Coach Betsy Butterick. Hey, Betsy. Hey, Coach. How are you? Good. How are you? I'm doing well, thanks. Thanks for being so flexible. Oh, absolutely. Um, hey, you know, you know what's funny is I, I go, I know, I, maybe, you know, maybe she has a different time zone because I know you're, you're in, the, in the West Coast. And that, that's, my, that's, that's totally my fault, Coach. That's I apologize. okay. Um, uh, I was in the Bay Area earlier this week. I'm back down in San Diego. But it's always good to check. And I feel responsibility as the communication specialist <laughs> to, to take responsibility for that. So all good. <laughs> Yeah, I appreciate, I appreciate that. Hey, welcome to the uh, Championship Vision Podcast. Um, I think I think you are really ready to make us better, I'm, aren't I'm, you? I'm hoping to do so. That's the goal every time. Absolutely. Hey, can you tell me about, um, and I, I love all your videos. I have a great opportunity last couple of days to check out all your videos. I absolutely love them. I learned so much. Tell me about your journey as a coach and a player and how that led you to becoming the coach's sure, absolutely. coach. So I um, started playing basketball when I was nine and nobody in my family played. And I started playing club, I think late. So uh, when I was in eighth grade is when I started playing club basketball. And it was really a learn as you go journey for me and my family. And I learned probably my junior year in high school that if I really wanted to get a college scholarship, I probably should have gone to a different high school. My high school basketball coaches were great guys, but they didn't really know anything about helping a player who wanted to play at the next level. So I ended up, um, we moved, my family moved to the Bay Area when I was 11 from the East Coast. And I immediately fell in love with Stanford basketball. That's where I wanted to go to school. That's where I wanted to play. So not getting recruited out of high school I applied and I thought, okay, if, if I get in, I can try out as a walk-on. And I didn't get in applying out of high school. So I went to the local junior college, which was Foothill Community College, where they had an honors institute that was staffed by ex-Stanford professors. And I took honors classes. I played basketball for a year there. I applied again. And this time I got a really nice note with my rejection letter from Stanford that said, you know, we realize you've applied twice now. If you apply a third time, you've got a good shot. We had a large sophomore transfer class. So at that point I had a decision to make. And the decision was, do I try a third time for what's been my dream since I was 11? Or do I accept one of the scholarship offers on the table? So I ended up taking a full ride to UMBC and I was there for a year. And what I didn't know at the time of my recruiting trip was that eight players had left or transfers in the two years the head coach had been there. And then I got to experience why over the, my first and only season at UMBC, that combined with wanting to have more time than a division one schedule allowed me to focus on academics, led me to make a decision to transfer 
and I transferred to Division Three Claremont McKenna in Southern California. So my class sizes went from the hundreds to anywhere from nine to 18 people. And I spent two years there, wow. played Division Three, had a phenomenal time playing basketball, but more so spending the time that I personally wanted to spend as the student part of the student-athlete combination. And what was interesting during that time is that growing up, you know, even coming to the club scene late, learning more about recruiting after those specific windows had passed was as a student athlete, we're sold this idea that it's division one or bust, right? Like that's the ultimate goal. That's where the real, the glory is. That's where the satisfaction lies. And in my journey of playing junior college, division one, division three, what I found is that division three was not necessarily less than, it was simply different than. Instead of our point guards being at division one, five, eight, now they were five, two, instead of my post players that I was teammates with being, you know, six, five, six, six, now they were five, 11. So the competitiveness was there. There were some phenomenally skilled players that I played with and against in division three, but the sizing was different. The speed was a little bit different, but the competitiveness, the joy to be found in the game, all of that was still there. So that was my playing journey. And then once I'd graduated from high school, I began coaching summer basketball camp for Tara Vanderveer. And the summer before my junior year of college, Tara asked if I'd like to intern with her women's basketball program once I graduated. So I finished at Claremont McKenna, came back to the Bay Area, which was home. My folks still live there. And I started my internship year with the Stanford women's basketball program. During that year, Tara's youngest sister, there's five Vanderveers. Tara's the oldest. Heidi Vanderveer is the youngest. Heidi at the time was coaching in the WNBA in Seattle with the late Ann Donovan. And being opposite seasons, Heidi was around for the college season. So I met Heidi, got to know Heidi. Heidi recommended to Coach Donovan that I get hired on with the storm. So Ann flew down to a Stanford game. I remember I was folding towels in the back hall quickly between halftime and the second half. And we had a very brief interview <laughs> and uh, I got taken on as the equipment manager for the storm. So at 23, I was hired as the first female equipment manager that the Seattle storm had ever had. And as soon as I finished my season with Stanford, moved up to Seattle, started with the storm, Sue Bird, Lauren Jackson were on the team at the time. For me, especially being 23, I got to travel the country with some of the best basketball players that I'd ever seen play, and I had a blast. So I was with the Storm for that season, and then right after, the University of Washington took on an all-new staff, and I got hired on as their video coordinator. After a year at Washington, Heidi got out of the pros and back into college by taking the head coaching job at Occidental College in Division Three, which happened to be in the same conference that I played in when I was at Claremont McKenna. So Heidi asked me to come be her assistant. And we were there for four years together. We won four championships in four years. And then she took the head coaching job at UC San Diego. And I went with her and we won two championships in the three years I was there. Heidi's still there, but I stepped off the court in 2015 to do what I do now, which is work with athletic departments and teams on topics important to them. But my favorite topic being communication and intentional communication and and how we can use our language to increase the student-athlete experience, the quality of that experience, but also win more games. And that might sound like a, wow, that's a, you know, a math problem that would be really cool to figure out. That's the work I've been doing since I left. And then I also coach coaches of all sports, men and women, as an executive coach. So someone that's just there to help them be at their best so they can give their best to those in their program. And yes, your experience, I mean, it's amazing. Now, did you... 
I think you said you did you did you coach at the high school level or you, you started in, in college? I started in college. So when I was coaching summer camps, I was coaching younger kids and especially at Stanford camp, I'd be coaching high school athletes. But as far as um, yes. my professional coaching career, it was all in college. So I worked in division one, division two, II, division three in the WNBA. But then I would teach private lessons, especially when I was coaching in division three in order to make ends meet. And our athletic director allowed me to use our gym whenever it wasn't being used by one of the teams at Occidental. So I had um, an array of coaching clients, individuals that were of high school age, both boys and girls. Yes. And I, and I'm all, I right. coach girls. <laughs> And uh, I, and it's funny. I, I, I love it. And I, I'm going to learn from you because I know that communication at any level, um, but with girls, especially, um, I think there's an art to that. And I really want to study from you. And I really love all the, uh, I mean, it's only been a short time, but I, I love what you're doing as far as giving quick you know, pieces of advice for us coaches. And I'm going to be asking you about that sure. if you don't mind. Uh First of all, tell me about Tara Vandiver because I think she's an unknown great coach. I don't think most people, particularly out here in the East Coast, know how great she is and the longevity right. of well, her. Well, and her story is really interesting, Kevin, in that I'll, I agree with you. So she's well-known on the West Coast, but whenever I travel back East, yeah. you know, when you think of basketball names on the East Coast – you still think of Pat Summit. We'll always think of Pat Summit. You know, you think of Gino, you think of Muffet, yeah. you think of these great women's basketball coaches that have been in major institutions on the East Coast. Tara's really, I'll say, one of her kind on the West Coast. And she's out in Palo Alto, California. So it's like she she's almost in the Pacific Ocean. And it's really easy for people that don't either know the world of women's basketball as well or don't travel West to forget that she's here. Not just that she's here, but she's been the force that she's been for so long. She left Ohio State when she could have stayed and had the legacy she's had at Stanford at a major institution that was already well-funded and well-established. But instead, she took a chance and her father specifically, her parents were both educators, but her father told her in, you know, no mixed words, you're crazy. You're going to a very smart school with limited resources that has no footprint or impact in the world of women's basketball. What are you going to do? And obviously, we've seen what she's done. <laughs> um, but Tara took something that was unknown and she brought it to national prominence and she's held it there. And part of what I admire about Tara and this was something I experienced during my internship year. The example I'll use is, you know, we'll have staff meetings two or three hours before practice time. And Tara would have an extensive practice plan and we'd be talking about it as a staff. And sometimes it would mean that as the intern, I would need to go down early and tape, use that floor tape to create three point lines on the side baskets in Maple's Pavilion. And so I do that and it would take, you know, anywhere if you're doing it by yourself, it takes about 40 minutes to tape down three-point lines on six side baskets and she'd come down for practice and she'd be like oh you know what I changed my mind go ahead and take up the tape we're not going to do that drill anymore and you had to be ready at any point I learned during that year to sacrifice what was the plan for what the plan is right now and I'll say that Tara is a master of looking at any situation and determining what do we need right now to be successful and when you hear people talk about coach Vanderveer and I have to say Tara because I've coached with both of them. But when you hear people talk about Tara, they'll talk about how she always has her team peaking at the right time. 
And that's not accidental. I mean, that's years of experience and knowing and applying on a daily basis. What do we need right now to take that next step? And then tomorrow, not what do we do based off of what we did yesterday, but what's needed today. And I think that's a unique quality that not a lot of coaches have, but that any coach can develop is how do you let go of what was and focus on what is to determine what's next. Yeah, that, that's great. I, I guess what you're saying is you have to be, she's great at making adjustments, mm -hmm. right? Making um, maybe, you know, throwing away a, a, a plan that she had and kind of making great adjustments. Cause isn't that what coaching's all about? We all go in with a plan and all of a sudden, boom, after the first quarter, we got to right. make adjustments. Um, is that what you're saying? I'm, uh, or she's one that, I mean, tell, tell us about so, that. And if I had to summarize it, I would say two things about Tara. So Tara's the master of flexibility. And for a coach okay. of her stature and standing, it would be very easy. And I see this happen in a lot of programs, not just basketball or women's basketball, where a coach has been doing something for a long time and they've been successful at it. So they don't change because it's always worked. And that's when it's we're, we as coaches are most at risk of having something not go well is when we think we've arrived, right? When we think we know it all, when we think we have it handled. So Tara has remained a master of flexibility over the years. And I think in part, that's what's helped her be so successful for as long as she has. The other part, and anyone who knows Tara knows, she can kill some film. Like you can be in film for days and not see the sunshine. And she doesn't put her team through that, but she does that specifically herself. Tara loves the research part of coaching. And I think that's another aspect that many coaches don't spend as much time on. And as a coach, you're one person. We all have 24 hours in a day. You need to allocate your time the way you see best. But Tara loves film and she will research it. Her teams are always so well prepared. And that's something that you'll hear across the world of women's basketball. Stanford's women's basketball is never surprised. Someone might come up with a great defensive strategy or they might throw something in in the moment that they didn't see coming, but very rarely are her players unprepared. I would say her players are never unprepared. Very rarely is her staff unprepared because they're so good at breaking down film and watching film and doing research and thinking, okay, but what if this and what if this and problem solving? So it's almost taking that high academic level of Stanford and then applying it to basketball and you just get this phenomenal product. Yeah, I'm a big fan. I'm a huge fan. I'm from okay. San Jose and my, yeah, I, I, all my family, San Jose State, Stanford. So I, I, hey, there's a connection already <laughs> with us, Betsy. So uh, I'm from that area. And how I got out to Georgia is crazy, but um, I'm a big fan uh, of Tara. I have all her videos. Matter of fact, I'm, I'm sure that I've, I've helped pay for a lot of the things that she, she has right now. But uh, she, she's an awesome coach. Tell me about Muffet McGraw. And I think I, I, I asked you this uh, on an email. I think it's an interesting platform mm -hmm. that she has. Is she saying that there's not enough women in coaching or should women take more of an assertive role in coaching? Help sure. me out with that. I mean, she's saying both, Kevin. And the reality is there aren't enough women in coaching, specifically coaching women's sports. And you look at whether it's legislation like Title IX that was passed. And people think of Title IX, I'll say uninformed people think of Title IX as something that takes away opportunities from men. Because if we need to have equality, the fastest way for an athletic department to do that is to cut opportunities for men's sports so that they don't have to go through the trouble of adding opportunities for women. 
Title IX is an educational referendum that's about giving equal educational opportunity to both men and women. So when Muffet says, and the platform that she has, you know, you talked about an interesting platform. I relate it back to public speaking. We talk about, you know, being on a big stage. When you're speaking to an audience, oftentimes the stage is the same size. It's the audience that grows. And when you talk about the women's basketball final four, it's like that press room is the same press room or the same size press room that she sat in for so many years during her career. But the question that gets asked and the media coverage that happens, the convergence of those things at the time when she's on that stage of the final four, now the message gets broadcast to a larger, a larger audience. What's interesting about the comments that happened specifically during the final four, and I was watching some clips of her earlier this week when she was on, um, on CBS Good Morning, I think, you know, they're talking about Muffet. Did you really mean what you said when you said you don't hire men? And she said, you know, I have hired men in the past. And, and currently I have, I think it's her director of operations and her video coordinator are both men. She said, it's not that I don't hire men. It's that there are so few opportunities being given exclusively to women. And when I talk about communication with teams during the championship communication workshop that I do, there's always a portion where I talk with coaches and players about the importance of rephrasing in the positive. So instead of telling people what we don't want to see, tell them what we do want to see. And in a way, Muffet could have, although it wouldn't have been as, I'll say, impactful, she said, I'm not going to hire men. And people took that as, whoa, 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 that's discrimination. What's interesting is that... Yes, oh, yes sorry, go ahead. Sorry. I, I'm sorry. Sometimes, yeah, sometimes it, it, it just, um, it goes off for a second. Uh, no problem. I'll okay. edit that. Cause, sure, I'll, I'll pick yeah, up where I left continue off. On. Continue um, on. What's interesting is that given, especially the political climate of our country today, so many comments made about it are more polarizing than they are unifying. So when Coach McGraw said, you know, I'm, I don't hire men or I'm not going to hire men people took that as a knee-jerk reaction of, well, that's discrimination. You can't say that you're not going to hire men. That's discriminatory. What she said on the CBS Good Morning piece was, you know, we had Women's History Month and then we had Black History Month and people are saying, well, why don't we have Men's History Month? And she said, because all of our history classes are about men. You know, you think about mm -hmm. the women that you were taught about in your history class in elementary school, Betsy Ross, and she was made history for sewing, right? She, she sewed the American flag. So, what she was saying is that, you know, part of the reason why, you know, think about movies like um, Hidden Figures, where we're talking about the women that were behind the spacewalk. Like, these, there are pieces of unknown history that relate specifically to women that aren't told because the storytellers have traditionally been men. Was she saying that there's not enough women coaching? Absolutely. When women's sports were first on the rise, 90% of women's teams were coached by women. As those sports gained traction and became more popular, and as they became more popular, the title of coach got a higher paycheck, more men started applying. Since that time, that 90% has gone to and hovered right around 41%. And that needle in the last 14 years has barely changed. So what we're seeing is, and I believe what Coach McGraw is saying, if you can interpret it this way, it's not that men aren't valuable, it's that women are undervalued. And when you're coaching women, and you know this from coaching high school girls, 
it's not that you as a coach aren't effective or the best coach for them, but the more that we can put women in the coaching position so that people who are playing sports, young girls that are playing sports can look at that female role model and say, you know what? I think I'd like to do that too. I think I'd like to coach young women. I think I'd like to be that person for these people in an impactful way. If they can see it, they can be it. And what Muffet is saying is at least until the playing field is equal, where young women in sport can look around and see an equal number of men and women in the coaching profession, or if not equal, at least so they can see more women and ask themselves the question, what do I want to do? Who do I want to be? But they have to see it in order to believe it. Yeah. So are you saying Betsy, that me as a male coach, I need to allow my female players to take more ownership, more leadership roles. And I need to more be a more of a facilitator uh, and even start in my young PE classes. Right. We, we, this needs to be groomed into our, our young female athletes, even at a younger age, right? Well, and really what, what I would encourage all coaches to do, regardless of gender, regardless of sport, is as an educator, if we, if we scale coaching back, right, and we always joke about it, it's, it's about basketball, but it's not about basketball. It's about developing young people for the rest of their lives. So if we think of coaches as educators, which I would argue they very much are, as educators, I feel a responsibility to broaden the perspective and open up as many options as possible to the student athletes that we're coaching so that then they can make the best choice for them. So in the same way, you know, it's interesting when I was at Stanford, actually, I was in charge of what were called the future hoopers. And so it was five to eight year old boys and girls. And I had 31 of them at a time for three hours in the morning. This was part of one of the summer camps. And at the time I had short hair. And this little girl, she was five, she came up to me and she said, Coach Betsy, this is the second day of camp. Coach Betsy, are you a boy or a girl? And I said, well, my name's Betsy, I'm a girl. And she said, oh, I couldn't tell because you have short hair. So th- that, I mean, that was kind of a shocking moment for me where I, I'd never questioned, you know, my, my sexuality or my gender identity, I should say more specifically. I knew that I was a girl. I knew that I was a woman. But this young person had been taught that Girls have long hair, boys have short hair. So if you have short hair, now I question whether or not you, Betsy, are a girl. So anything that we can do as educators, and that was one example, but anything we can do as educators to show young people that if you want to be this, you can be this. You know, women in tech was an unheard of thing. Girls who code, no. Men were engineers. The coders were all men. And now there's organizations specifically throughout our country designed to help young women see more engineers like themselves at an older age doing things that were at one time a particularly male-dominated industry. So short answer, as educators and you as a coach, anything we can do to provide opportunities, options, and a larger perspective for our student-athletes, I feel a responsibility to do that. Yeah, that's great advice. So, I mean, really eliminate really eliminate gender bias, right? Well, I mean, it doesn't matter. Yeah, and I mean, which is hard to do. <laughs> it is and it's not. So, and I say that because yeah. I have a twin brother, so we're half an hour apart. And being boy-girl twins, our parents were very intentional about raising us in a gender-neutral household. Now, when we got to elementary school, both of us were made fun of because I preferred to play football with the boys at recess. My brother preferred to play Foursquare with primarily girls because those were the games <laughs> that we loved. And we were taught that whatever you love to do, do that, right? So we can say it's hard. It's really not. What's hard is going against either the preconceived 
notions about what boys and girls do that have already been put into the young people that we're coaching or to take a stand and be that first to say, you know, I know you're used to it being this way, but this is also an option. Yeah. And I guess what, so I'm sure what you deal with too, right, Betsy is the older generation of coaches. I mean, do you find that more problem with older coaches you deal with and easier with younger coaches? You know, what's interesting, and I actually just recently generated a workshop around this specifically because it's come up so frequently. It's not necessarily the older coaches that have the issue coaching younger people. It's that the younger people we are coaching are for the first time in our evolutionary history so different than any generation we've ever coached before. That's becoming the challenge for both younger coaches and older coaches. So Generation Z, the youngest of whom are now starting to be Uh sophomores in college, they've never known life without the internet. And we know certain facts about Generation Z and we hear them and we say, okay, okay, I get it. They've never known life without the internet. And, you know, they have short attention spans or stunted social skills or communication skills. Okay, okay. Knowing it is one thing, looking at the application of what does that mean in terms of how we coach them or how coachable they are or what we need to do in order to reach them. That's where things get really interesting and where we as coaches, older and younger, can be much more intentional and specific about what we do to create the optimal sporting environment, learning environment for this different generation. You know, I hear coaches say all the time, well, kids, kids these days, kids these days. Yes, kids these days. Kids these days are different. The sooner that we can acknowledge that their difference is no longer a barrier and it's one more challenge to overcome as coaching and seek to find answers instead of placing blame, that's when we're going to succeed regardless of the age of the coach. So coaches have to grow and learn, right? I mean, It's a that's... lot easier to change one person. So me as a coach, it's a lot easier for me to change than to ask <laughs> 18 people on my team to change. Totally agree. Yeah. And that's, Hey, I, I want you to coach me up now and help me with my communication <laughs> skills. Um, the, the act I'm going to go, I'm just going to pick out certain acts sure. from the videos. And I love those because I have, I'm attention deficit. So I can't, I can't study for too long. <laughs> you and everybody and else. <laughs> short and sweet, short and sweet. Uh, reframe the negative. Yep. How can I tell my players what to do rather than don't do that is a that's that's tough right and it's again it's tough because we we do it so often without thinking about it so one of the things when I'm working with an individual coaching client a a phrase I hear myself say often is that awareness is a prerequisite for change so you can't change something that you don't know that you're doing and you might do it but without stopping to think about it without cultivating that awareness piece that's when it's really hard to make a change. Once you're aware, the more you're aware of it, the easier it becomes to change. And you mentioned ACT, and just for the audience, I wanna clarify that ACT, when um, Coach is talking about the ACT videos, on YouTube, there's 26 ACT videos. ACT stands for Active Communication Technique, and these are all roughly two minutes or less, and they're a communication tip that's designed to give anybody, not just coaches, something you can do today to improve the way you communicate and connect with others. So many of them have a sports, I'll say, um, a point of origin in sports, but I've phrased them in a way that makes them applicable to anyone, whether you're a parent or a teacher or a coach or have nothing to do with athletics. So when you talk about rephrase the negative, and I've called it reframe, I've called it rephrase, that goes back to specifically, and this is research-based in sports psychology. Whenever we say a negative, when we use a negative in language, 
the brain doesn't understand it the way that we do when we speak it. So when I say a negative on a subconscious level, the brain doesn't process that the same way as how I mean it when I speak it. And instead it acts as a little signifier and I pay more attention to whatever word comes next. And the example I use in the video is, you know, when coaches as any sport, we say, don't stop playing. When you say don't, that comes like a little blip. And then all of a sudden what I hear more is keep playing or don't stop playing. Right. And so then I slow down and this, the example I give, and this is perfect for a basketball coach. If you've ever brought your team together for a timeout, and you tell them exactly what needs to happen. Okay, the only thing we can't do is foul. So when we go back out, we're up by one. The only thing we can't do is foul. And then they go out and the exact opposite thing that you want it to happen happens. <laughs> Part of that relates right. to our language. Now, is, is it 100%? No. But anytime that we can tell people what we want to see instead of what we don't want to see, we're essentially taking a shortcut to getting more of the behavior that we want. So we're getting closer to the outcome that we're looking for when we're more specific with our language. And oftentimes people think of the negative as anything that starts with don't. You can even take this out of sports context and put it in um, something that we say, especially in California all the time. So we'll say, oh, sorry, I forgot about this. And you say no problem or no worries. Well, what does that imply? That there was a problem or they should have been worried, right? So instead saying, thanks, I appreciate it. Or just finding something positive. And this is a game that I'll play with teams. We'll do a, a workshop about communication. I'll talk about rephrasing in the positive and why it's important. The research goes on to make points about how positive environments outperform negative environments every time. Positive leaders make better decisions under pressure. And then how positive environments, uh, aspects like gratitude can actually help improve athletic performance. So as coaches, we're always looking for that little edge that gives us a competitive advantage. I now do a workshop on gratitude. It's called a season of gratitude in part because things like gratitude Things like being intentional with our language, rephrasing the positive are small shifts that create a, a big change in the way that we compete and also in the success that we see. So I'll challenge teams, you know, anytime you hear someone say don't, anytime you hear them say no, is there a way you can say that in the positive? If so, call your team out, say rephrase and challenge them to say the same thing, but instead of what they don't want, make them say what they do want. Yes, and you're fighting against human nature, right? Because I, I think that's a human instinct, isn't it? Betsy? To say it's, don't it, or no? Yeah, to say no. Like, like, you know, I mean, you know, no layups in the paint. You know, because mm -hmm. I, I do that. Those are my three principles on defense. And you made me think I'm going. <laughs> well, so, you know, it's like don't, no don't let them drive middle, shots. right? Don't let them drive yeah. middle because yeah. why? Because it's more dangerous, it's harder to defend when someone's in the middle of the floor because now there's no distinct help side. So taking these concepts, these things that we say, don't let her drive middle, extrapolating it out so that your team understands what happens when an offensive player is in the middle of the floor, and then rephrasing that as keep her out of the middle. Because when we keep her out of the middle, we have a definitive help side that helps our defense be more successful. So all of these things, and, and I love doing this with coaches who are like, well, what about this? You know, what about this? There's always a way to find the positive rephrase. You have to work for it a little bit, but it's one of those things that the more you practice it, the easier it is to do. So when you say it's in our nature, it's easier. It's in our lazy nature to say, don't do this and no. It's a little more intentional and a lot more effective if we challenge ourselves to instead say what we really mean. Yeah. Are you going to charge me for this consultation? No. <laughs> because I'm stealing, I'm stealing all this information. Um, and I just that little adjustment there, because I was thinking about that. 
how do I phrase my nose? Because right. I have a saying that says, know your nose. Mm-hmm. And I stole that from a great coach. And, um, but uh, I got to readjust that. I, I love that. I love that adjustment there. Thank keep you. the keep it out of the middle instead of no middle. I love that. Yeah. Uh, manage the madness for me, Betsy. Mm-hmm. And I, I love that one because in we're we have a great team here that we're building. We're gonna be in the tournament. Tell me how I can coach better under that that one and done scenario. <laughs> well, and I it's interesting because you know, coaches always say, especially when they hear that I coach coaches, it's like, oh, so you tell them how to coach. That's actually the one thing I never do. Like I'll never tell a coach how to coach, but if you want to become a better one, that I can probably help you with. And each coach's journey and how they become a better coach is unique to them. So people say, Well, what does coaching look like? It absolutely depends on where the coach is looking to grow or what they're looking to achieve or what they're looking to do. My job as the coach's coach is to help people get from where they are now to where they want to be. When it comes to communication, you talk about managing the madness. The madness is, I'll say, almost maddening because there's so much going on. And then there's that added pressure of if we don't do well, we lose, our season's over, right? So changing their focal point And I love talking about this with teams, the difference between controllables and uncontrollables. So what is yours to control and what's out of your control? And if you focus on the controllables and you can scale that down to a phrase that I borrowed from yoga that I love, that my teacher always used to say is be where your feet are. It sounds funny because you can't be anywhere else. And yet how much of our mental capacity or our time during the day do we spend thinking about the past or thinking about the future or worrying about this? When you can really truly be where your feet are, which means to be present in the moment, That is your greatest opportunity to perform well. So when we talk about managing the madness, anything you can do as a coach to alleviate pressure, to help them focus on what's controllable, and to bring your student-athletes back to right now, that's going to help manage the madness. Yeah, we almost need somebody to manage the head coach as well. (laughs) Well, You know that running joke, all head coaches are a little bit crazy. There's some truth in that. If you think about the immense pressure, and we joke about this in college basketball all over the time, as coaches, specifically at the college level, any sport, you're putting your professional livelihood in the hands of 18 to 22-year-olds. When you think about that, that's crazy. And yet that's what we sign up for as coaches, is we're taking on the responsibility of not only educating and mentoring, and in some ways parenting, depending on the the student athlete and the situation. We are all these things to all these people in such a potentially transformative and valuable way. And that's what I love about coaching is you're impacting people's lives for the rest of their lives. And it sounds like that's a big thing to say. That's because it is a big thing. That's what coaching is. That's what coaching does in the same way that teachers influence young people for the rest of their lives. We just happen to do it through sport instead of subject matter. So Yes, there is a big responsibility in managing the madness. That's part of why I started coaching coaches is I saw a need for coaches to have someone who's in their corner that isn't their significant other. It isn't a fellow staff member. It isn't a mentor or a peer. It's someone with no skin in the game who's just there for them to help them do whatever it is they need so that they can manage their own madness and give their best to those in their program. And give them the truth. Mm Mm-hmm. Right. I don't care if you I mean, don't like me. My right? job is to help you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I think Nick Saban, the one thing I've studied about Coach Saban is he has somebody like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I forget his name, but he has he, the mental side of the game is important to him. 
And he has people, uh, he has a guy that I, and I forget his name. And I think they're great coaches. You know, they have somebody by their side trying to manage, trying to help them out, right? Most do. And, and that's an interesting thing about coaching. And people often ask, well, you know, who's your typical client? I typically work with coaches that are at one end of the spectrum or the other. So on the low end, there's the calls I get from an athletic director that say, hey, Betsy, we're really struggling with this coach. I think we might need to let them go at the end of the season. Can you work with them before we have to make that decision? So is there something that we can do in terms of their individual development to help them be better and stay in the position that they currently have? On the other end of the spectrum, when you talk about Coach Saban, there's people that are super successful and they realize that there is more in them. But they know that in order to reach that, they need to do things differently than they've done before. And that's where they have the added benefit of getting someone who's not them, who's not part of their staff, who's not part of their program, to come in with an outside perspective and be able to guide them in ways that they can't see because they're so in it. But it's like it's one end where there's coaches that say, hey, things have gone horribly wrong. Or there's the other thing where coaches are really successful and that's oftentimes the people say, well, what else do they need? You know, they're doing so well. They are. And the most successful know that that's exactly the time that they need to work to get better because that is what will sustain their success. And that's where you come in. That's where I love to play. Right. Both ends. Exactly. <laughs> I'm grateful for, yeah. for the ability to be of service wherever it comes. But um, you know, I was working with the Iowa Women's Field Hockey Program two months ago, and they have a legitimate shot at winning a national championship this year. And the one thing that their coaching staff said they thought was holding their team back was inability to have the most difficult conversations, teammate to teammate. And so I got to go in and I spent the day with them observing. And then we had a, a dinner with their staff and the staff was so receptive to, you know, the shifts that they can make in how they coach and what they say to create a different environment for their team. But then also their team, when we did the workshops the next day, the amount of change that they created in a half day workshop and the things that they've shown me on video and written in since then about how they're applying the things that they learned, like if it's controllable to remove roadblocks that hold us back from our ultimate success, Let's do it. Let's get, let's get the bulldozer. Let's pave a new road. And that's possible for everyone, but only when they see that there's more in them. You know, usually people, there's a rule in coaching. You never coach without an opportunity when we're talking about executive coaching or without an invitation specifically. People typically only see a need for coaching or invite someone to help them when they need help. It's those that look for the opportunities to get better when they're already good that have the ability to be truly great. Yeah, going from good to great. Yeah, mm -hmm. absolutely. And it's easy to get satisfied. Totally. Right? And, and you should be. It's like there's part of it where it's like you've worked so hard and then you achieve success. You just want to sit back and enjoy it. Yes. And, you know, that whole quote about resting on your laurels, that's the time when the best get better. Right, right. And I'm always hungry, though, because my teams are always very average. We're always striving. We're always striving to get better. And I, I think that I actually love being in those situations. I'm not sure what I would do if I had a continually state championship mm -hmm. team. I don't know, Betsy. Hopefully I enjoy it. I'm always, <laughs> I, hope, I, I hope I would. Yeah. I, but, um, tell me about mental toughness. We have a saying here called next play. Mm -hmm. Girl, make a mistake on the court. Everybody on the bench. Next play, yep. next play. Yep. 
how do you handle mental toughness? And positive psychology. I mean, I'm a huge fan. And, and while this isn't my specific area of expertise, a lot of what we talk about in communication is not just how do we communicate with others, but that area of self-talk. So how do you talk to yourself? And there's that saying, if, um, if, uh, you had to date the voice in your head, would you like the person that you're in a relationship with? And, and we do have that internal relationship. So I love things like that, whether it's a, a trigger action or a trigger word. So when you talk about next play, you're asking yourself to let go of what you can no longer control and step into the present moment. So I love things like that. And I think anytime as a program, each program has its own language, but within a culture, anytime we can come to an agreement on what language we're going to use to signal a shift that an individual will make that benefits the whole team, that's absolutely a value. When I was coaching at UCSD, we had a transfer that came in, and one of the things like that that she brought with her was, I see you. And at first, it sounded strange. You know, we're doing a conditioning workout, and she talks to someone that's you know, kind of fallen behind a freshman. She's like, I see you, Georgie. And what it came to mean is I see you working. I see you giving your best effort. Even when people would make mistakes and the teammates started saying it to each other, we as a staff started saying it to the team. I see you. The value of people feeling seen in their efforts, whether they're succeeding or failing, has incredible transformative power to bring a team together. That acknowledgement of you are working, you're doing the work individually for a greater good super powerful. So you're, the language is important, isn't it? I mean, I would argue, yes, <laughs> your, your language, your verbiage. I don't, I, I know I really believe in that. I just take pride in that, but man, isn't that important, Betsy? I mean, that is your program. That's your culture, right? Well, so here's the thing. And, and as a speaker, regardless of who I'm speaking with and where I go, I have two goals. The first is that people by the time they leave are a little more intentional about their language than before they came in. And so far hundred percent success rate. The second thing is whatever I come into a room with, when I speak, by the time I leave, I want people to feel like it's theirs as a student athlete. And then as a coach, I sat through so many presentations where the thing that the speaker was talking about was good, but it only worked when they were there or you need to buy the next product or service, which from a marketing perspective is great, but from a being of service perspective, Having been in those shoes as a student athlete and a coach, that was less helpful. So it's really important to me that whatever I come in with translates to the audience so that during presentation, they feel like it was made for them. And by the time they leave, they take it with them. I think one of the most important things we can do, and this is why I love communication. Communication is not sports specific. Communication is not gender specific. Communication is not job specific. Communication applies to everybody, everywhere, all the time. And yet we tend to only be intentional about our communication when we have something important to say, when we're going to have a difficult conversation, when we need to meet with a parent, when we're writing an important email, when we're crafting a message to our team before a big game. If we were a little bit more intentional about our, our language, even 5% more throughout our day to day, that would have a huge impact on the way that we communicate, the way that we connect. And, and sports is life, right? I mean, it, how can you... I think sometimes as coaches, we focus just on the sport, right? I mean, sports, whatever you do within your program is going to affect what those kids will, what the impact they'll have in their lives, right? I mean, we, we got to really be more intentional about that. I, th I think it would be to our benefit and to theirs, more specifically, if we were. Do you have to do it? No. Is it an option? Yes. Will it benefit you? Yes. Will it benefit them? Absolutely. So then it becomes a question of, well, why not? And the answer to that, why not, is 
people typically, it's just not something that they're thinking about. And I use that word just, and I have a whole act video about weak language, but it's not something they're thinking about. It's something that we do so often. It's become so habitual in that way. You think about, you know, after you learn to drive a car and you've been driving for a few years, think about a route that you drive all the time. You drive without really thinking about it. And that's how it's become with us with language. We learn to talk at an early age and we've been speaking our whole lives. And the more we speak, the less intentional we become about what we're saying until it's one of those crucial conversations or an important you know, moment. But if we were to apply that same intentionality to our day-to-day language, specifically with our teams, man, what a huge impact that could have. So we need somebody like yourself in our ear training us. You need right? someone. I mean, you need someone like yourself. That's the problem. Well, that's the thing. So I, you know, and it's, I face this challenge too. People, I can't tell you the number of coaches that say, "Can I just have you on a headset? Like, can you just be in my ear when I'm, you know, talking <laughs> yeah. to my team? That would be lovely." And there's no time. So the point I want to make is that it's not about. So the things that happen when I work with a coach or I work with a team, I will give them options for what they could adopt. I will give them tools or tips or techniques that they can use. Things only change when they do the work and they know that. And same thing with coaches. It's like, you know, I could be in your ear all day, but until you learn how to do it for yourself. And the goal when I coach people is as a coach, my responsibility is to as quickly as they are comfortable, get them to a point where they are self-generating and self-correcting, meaning that When they make a mistake or their behavior isn't at the level that they'd ideally like it to be, in this case, maybe their communication, they know what went wrong. They know how to fix it. So they essentially become their own coach. That's my job is to teach people how to be their own coach. So as quickly as possible, they don't need me and they can keep doing this on their own and continue their own growth and development. The only people they need, and this is people that are in marketing would be like, Betsy, I can't believe you said this. They don't need me. They need to have a little bit of intentionality around a desire to improve their communication. Now I can help them with that, but this is something anybody can do. If you just watch the ACT videos, and again, I think there's 26 of them. If you apply one a week for the next 26 weeks, you've just spent almost half a year working on your communication, and I guarantee you'll be better for it. You don't need me to do that. You need to put in the time, and you need to have the intentionality around doing the work. Yes, and as coaches, we have to be willing we have to humble ourselves a little bit. We got to be willing to grow. Not all coaches are like that, mm-hmm. right, Betsy? I wish it. Yeah. Um, and that's why I do my podcast is to learn from from people like you. And I'm I'm having a blast. Matter of fact, I got to cut down on my questions because <laughs> you've been have to go home. Uh, but uh, and I only have a couple more questions sure. for you. And I I love I love what you're providing for me and not only a lot of the coaches. Um, body language. I I don't know why. I really, I observe body language a lot, not only with people in general, but my players. And we really Mm -hmm. focus on positive body language. Is that overrated? No. I mean, when you think of, and we talk about communication, there's that old statistic, which there's been a lot of debate about, but the general truth holds. And that is that 7% of how our message is received is our actual words. 38% Mm -hmm. is our tonality and 55% is body language. Within body language, almost half of how our message is received comes from the shoulders up. So our facial expressions, you know, are we making eye contact or not? What are we doing with the most connective part of our body, which is our face? You know, so even if it's a head drop after a mistake of a student athlete, like picking your head up, you know, eyes up, um, whatever it happens to be, body language speaks volumes. 
And if you've ever played charades, you know the truth. It's like you can't use words. Okay, if you can't use words, how do you convey your message? And we have this incredible tool, this incredible visual called our body. Yes, especially you know, think about someone in the stands. They're too far away to hear what the coach is saying to the player. But if you ask them, what do you think they said? They're going to be able to tell you pretty accurately based off of the body language the coach used in that interaction or the body language of the, the player as they're receiving that information. So absolutely, body language speaks volumes. And it's the same trick of the mind where, you know, you can have body language as a reactive measure or you can use body language to create an internal environment that you may not automatically feel. So, you know, all of Amy Cuddy's work and the research on power posing and, and what that does to assume a confident body position, even at a moment when one doesn't necessarily feel confident and what that can do for, for shifting our internal landscape to a place where we actually start to feel more confident. So yeah, absolutely. Body language, hugely important. And I need to improve in that area because I know when I watch video, my body language needs a lot of work. I just I'm want glad to tell you, you I should see that. you. Oh, absolutely. I, I'm, you know, and, and my team caught it one day in a film session. It was funny, but my team caught it one day and, it's, and we all just laughed at it. It's like, here I am teaching my team about body mm -hmm. language. And then mine was horrible, Betsy. Right. And it's, that's and that unfortunately not rare. You know, we, we know our team needs these certain things, but then that self-reflection of am I as a coach embodying the things that I'm asking of my team or the things that I know are important for my team? If we're not, I mean, that message comes across as, as inauthentic or not as strong as it could be if we as leaders of the team were to embody it first, to model it first. So give me some help. If I'm, let's say I'm, given a player positive, she might read it as a negative. I might say, all right, all right, man, I love your hustle. She might read it as a negative through my body language. How can I, how can I kind of coordinate both of them? Well, give me, give me some. And that I don't, I'm trying to think of it. It would probably be rare for you to say, I love your hustle as a positive statement and have negative body language with it. Okay. So it's not that people will believe your body language over your words when it's positive and that it doesn't, that's not necessarily an even scale. So if you're saying something positive, but your body language doesn't match that, it's all about congruency. If you're saying something positive, but your body language doesn't match, they're gonna have a question about, do you really mean what you said? A compliment specifically. Same thing, if you say something negative, but your body language is positive, that just becomes confusing. Cause it's like, well, why does coach seem happy about the fact that they're saying, you know, it's like, if you say I'm really angry with a smile, like that looks a little psychotic, right? <laughs> so um, harmonizing your body <laughs> language with your words is one of the easiest ways to create authenticity. So, yeah. But we have to practice that. I, I mean, I mean, we have to train I, ourselves. I, I, or go, go ahead. I, I'm sorry. Oh, no, I'm, I'm trying right. to, I'm trying to figure out. Yeah. yeah. So I, you can, and I, I always, I used to joke with our team. If you've never taken an improv class, take an improv class because improv will stay. I joke, improv will save your life. But the truth in that is, <laughs> if you can learn to respond to what's needed now with what's immediately available to you, you're probably going to be okay in many areas of life. So. It's the same thing with communication. The more time we spend working on our communication skills, and communication is a skill. It's something that can be developed. The great communicators of our time, whether they're speakers or writers, didn't get to be that way automatically. They weren't born that way. They worked and they practiced and they failed. Specifically, I call myself a communication specialist because I think to say I'm an expert 
would be very egotistical because I don't know that we're ever going to know everything about communication, but I can learn as much as possible. And a lot of what I've learned has come through experiential practice, through failing at communications, through watching other people succeed and fail, from seeing what works in my own life, from seeing what works in my own coaching background, through making mistakes, coaching players, through having successes, coaching players, through watching coaches and players communicate with each other. So everything that I put out there is really a reflection of what I've observed and just having that commitment to being a lifelong learner when it comes to communication. And then how can I spit back out little tidbits that are of value to other people so that they can have greater success or they can improve their communication skills. And Betsy, tell me about, I believe in what I call my, I just created, I don't know why, the, the seven second um, statement where if, I, if, I, if I'm coaching somebody, it should take no longer than seven seconds. Is that, Tell me about that. Is there validity to that? Well, so the average attention span of our youngest generation, Generation Z, is eight seconds, which is technically like 0.28 seconds less than that of a goldfish. So seven-second statement, I would always argue, take the length of time that you need to say what needs to be said. But the caveat to that is ask yourself where you can trim the fat. So what's absolutely necessary? And it's easiest to do this in writing. If you write out something that you want to say and then go back and cross out the words that don't add value, that are filler words that distract from the potency of your message. If you can do that, even if it takes more than seven seconds, the other thing to keep in mind is you can say something in seven seconds. And that's a great rule of thumb, knowing that you've got that attention span from the beginning. But when you hit that seven second mark, there are little things that you can do to grab people's attention. So anytime you say someone's name, they automatically snap to attention because their name is unique to them. So you can talk to someone. And then if I'm talking with you and I'm going on and I'm answering this question about communication. So Kevin, the next time I say your name, you're going to, it's like you automatically snap back. So it's like you can reset that attention clock with different strategies. And the name is one of them. Uh, Absolutely. I love that. Um, But you're saying shorter is, Shorter is probably better, but anytime you can say more with less. uh, Yes. Yes, absolutely. Be concise. And I've heard coaches that have great things to say, but their message gets lost in the duration. So they go on and on and on. And it's like you lose track of, wait, what was their point? If you can say more with fewer words, you have greater power as a communicator for that. I love doing, I love writing haikus and using that five, seven, five, format because it challenges me to say something in a very concise manner and that's an easy exercise that anybody can do whether you feel like you're poetically inclined or not use the haiku format of five syllables seven syllables five syllables to say something that you want to say and that's just a good practice to get into of how can I make this more concise how can I pare down to just what's essential and then communicate that message to my audience and of course, the what's the battle, right? During a during a during a tough game, our team's not playing well. Right. It's emotion, right, Coach? Yeah, emotional timeouts, right? Sure. I mean, well, a, how can we be concise during emotional times? <laughs> so sometimes the best thing I've found with emotions is acknowledging them, right? So we can have a thirty second timeout, and our team has just gotten scored on back. It's three pointer turnover, three pointer. Um, another turnover and then we've just fouled and someone's about to go the free through line. So we call a timeout. There's been, you know, a seven point swing in 15 seconds, calming the emotions by acknowledging them. Hey, that was pretty bad, right? (laughs) But it's about to get better. Everybody take a breath and then say whatever it is you're going to say. Sometimes we come in and people are so emotional or in their head 
that they aren't ready to hear what we have to say. So acknowledging what's going on first can help really bust through that barrier and leave them more receptive to what we need them to hear. If you just go in with your message, they're not going to hear you if they're not ready yet. That's a great point because I know my my players, they, they know me pretty well. When I get really emotional mm-hmm. and then accept it, like you're saying, they seem to kind of – I seem to get their eyes. Yep. Yeah. And that's what, this is for anyone. This isn't a male thing, a female thing. This is an acknowledgement thing. When you acknowledge what people are feeling, you see them in the moment. When people feel seen, they feel appreciated, they're more apt to listen to you. I, lo- I love that. Hey, Coach, my, my last question, and, and uh, we might have to do, I might have to call you back for part two because I'm learning so much here. Um, let's talk about parents. Okay. What is the, I call it the team triangle, parents, uh, player, coach, and that has to be, that has to be cohesive, I think, to be successful. What's the best way for us coaches to communicate with parents and connect with them? So knowing that all parents are different in the same way that all student-athletes are different, if you try to coach your entire team one way, you're probably not going to have as much success as you could if you tailored things a little bit to meet the needs of that individual. Same thing with parents. Now, I say that, and coaches say, well, I don't have time to, you know, basically cater to the individual communication preferences of every parent. I'm not asking you to do that. What I'm asking you to do is to set expectations. So at the beginning of the season, you know, your first team meeting or your first parent meeting, clarify for your parents the way in which they can expect you to communicate with them, the way in which you'll be communicating with their child, and then also the way in which you would like to be communicated with. And then after that, it's, a ma- it's really a matter of holding boundaries. So if, you know, you say to a coach or say to parents, I won't have any immediate discussions after a game with you because I want to talk with our team and a parent tries to catch you as you're walking in the locker room. It's just holding those boundaries in place, but really all communication becomes easier once we've set expectations. Yes. And I, I think, um, and I, I feel like I, I do that and most coaches probably do, but it's during the season, right? Betsy, when you lose a, you lose that connection with parents because you, you haven't had a meeting yeah, and we forget those boundaries, right? And we get tired and we get to the end of the year. So we, we have to almost have another meeting, right? Or another, how do we do, how do we connect again to continue through the season? Cause basketball is long. Right. And basketball is long and you can do that. You can also utilize the student athlete as a communicator, especially so if there's something that as a coach that's a conversation that I tell parents I will only talk about your student athletes playing time with your student athlete in part because one they're the they're the person that's playing two I'm with the student athlete at practice every day coach can you hear me okay Yep, I can hear you. Can you hear me? Okay. Yes, can you hear me okay? I think I got you back. Okay, great, yep. great. Yeah, uh, you were fading just a little bit, but that's not a problem, Coach. You had a, yeah, you had a great point. <laughs> 
So anytime you can touch base, and it's not that you have to have another meeting. Sure. You have to be intentional about when you communicate. And if you're hearing rumblings, right, or parents are dissatisfied or people are unhappy about this, that acknowledgement piece is really great for all situations. Just addressing things head on. Hey, I've heard that there's, you know, some frustration around this. If you'd like to talk about it, you know, I'll be available after practice on Thursday or whatever it happens to be. So, so picking and choosing, um, but also holding people, I'll say, a little bit to a higher standard of asking them, if you have an issue, come talk to me. Let's have a conversation. You know, let's not let this sit and fester. If there's something that you need to talk about and it's important to you, it's important to me, and this is how we're going to have those conversations. Yes, yeah, keeping that open door communication, right? I mean, always be available. <clears throat> and and it's, it's hard to say always, right. right? It's like we say always to our student-athletes, especially at the college level, but do we want parents calling us at 10 o'clock at night? No. So that's where it's important to set, set some sure. expectations around, here's how you can best communicate with me if and when you have an issue. This is the way that I'd like for us to engage in a conversation about uh, it. I love that. Coach, thank you. Betsy, I, I sure appreciate you coaching me up. I appreciate that. And um, <clears throat> I'm sure um, it would be a consultation fee, I'm sure, because I learned quite a bit. Um, <laughs> Well, I appreciate you having me on, Kevin. And again, if I can be a resource for others, um, whether it's on the website, there's information there at BetsyButterick.com. If you go to YouTube, those ACT videos sure. that we talked about, if people just search my name, there's really something for everyone, and that's the goal. So thank you for allowing me another outlet to potentially help people improve their Absolutely. I know you will because I got a lot of listeners, and um, the coaches will probably be in contact with you. What's the best way to contact you? best way would be through email so it's betsy b-e-t-s-y at betsy butterick which is my full name dot com and butterick is b-u-t-t-e-r-i-c all right betsy thank you so much thank you for sharing your vision i sure appreciate it you're welcome thanks for having me on kevin yeah thank you so much same to you thank you all right bye now bye-bye Coaches, how are you? Hey, make sure to check out my friends at Dr. Dish Basketball. They were a main sponsor of my Legends Clinic last year, and I got to see in person why the Dr. Dish is undoubtedly the best shooting machine on the market. I'm super excited to get one in my program here soon. As a matter of fact, it's already in the process of being ordered. The technology and versatility of the machine are unmatched. Make sure to check out their product lineup and their new Dr. Dish CT machine on their website at drdishbasketball.com and follow them on Twitter and Instagram at drdishbball. Mention this podcast and you can save $300 extra on your next Dr. Dick, Dr. Dish purchase. Get one soon. This is Coach Kevin Furtado of the Championship Vision Podcast. Hey coaches, this is Nick Bartlett with Dr. Dish Basketball, and you're listening to the Championship Vision Podcast with Coach Kevin Furtado. Make sure to check us out at drdishbasketball.com and on Twitter and Instagram at, at drdishbball for daily basketball drills, tips, inspiration, and how we've revolutionized the basketball shooting machine over here at Dr. Dish. Also mention this podcast and you will receive an exclusive discount on your next Dr. Dish purchase. Thanks for tuning in. What's up, everybody? It's Mike Cleansing from Head Start Basketball and the Hoop Heads Podcast. You're listening to the Championship Vision Podcast with Coach Kevin Furtado.